something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleh Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mission Control, just outside of Moscow. Picture a vast hall with rows of desks and those massive 80s computers. It's February 1985, and a few ground controllers are trawling through graphs and signals sent from a space station called Salyut 7, the pride and joy of the Soviet space program. Right now, Salyut 7 hasn't got any cosmonauts on board, It's on autopilot, orbiting the Earth, waiting for its next crew. So the ground controller's work is fairly routine. They record data, talk about their weekend plans. But then, right at the end of the shift, someone notices something weird on one of the dashboards. There's a light flashing on the control panel, a warning light. Everyone's on their feet trying to fix it. But then another light goes down. And another. One by one. The whole dashboard goes dark. A horrified silence fills the room. They've just lost the space station. It's like a dead piece of thing in orbit. That's Asif Siddiqui our Soviet space guy you heard last time. They couldn't find any kind of signal, nothing from the station. It's essentially floating, spinning, probably out of control in Earth orbit. And it's huge. This huge chunk of metal, if they don't control it, it might fall uncontrollably on an inhabited country and it could land on a city, a village, somewhere. And so they're very afraid of that. Thousands of people could die. It would be a human tragedy and a huge embarrassment for the Soviet Union. And so they need to do something that's never been done before. To land on a dead object in space, an out-of-control chunk of metal, and bring it back to life. 
I'm Lance Bass, and from Kaleidoscope, iHeart Podcast, and XL Content, this is The Last Soviet. As y'all know, I am obsessed with space and with this one particular space movie. Houston, we have a problem. Apollo 13. I freaking love this film. In my books, Tom Hanks can do no wrong. Power up the limb. Three hours by the checklist. We don't have that much time. It tells the story of a space flight gone seriously awry. The rescue mission became live news. All of America was watching, asking themselves, would the astronauts make it home alive? Of the Apollo 13 to the moon is in serious jeopardy. Disasters are one of the big reasons we fall in love with space. We're now coming to the moment, the last moments of Apollo 13, as it begins its re-entry. The best thing we can do now is just to listen and hope. The stakes could not be higher. And it's all beamed into your living room 24-7. They've made it. All three shoots out. Listen to the crowd on the boat. An extremely loud applause here in Mission Control. Hello, Houston. This is Odyssey. It's good to see you again. But the story I'm about to tell you now took place in complete secrecy. No one was allowed to know about it. And yet, it's the Soviet Union's very own Apollo 13. And the man who would lead it from the ground? Yep, you guessed it. Sergei Krekalev. In our last episode, we left our cosmonaut in 1961, aged three. The Soviet Union was still recovering from the wreckage of World War II. But they'd beat the Germans. And now, against all the odds, they'd conquered space, too. Space was going to be the future of the Soviet Union. And that generation who grew up in the 1960s were really sort of, I think, encouraged to think in utopian terms. The Soviet Union putting the first person in space was the defining moment of Sergei's childhood. And there was a sense that this was just the beginning of space exploration of the Soviet Union's rise on the global stage. All Russia's just wild about Yuri Gagarin, first man to conquer space. Please. For Sergei, life's possibilities must have seemed endless. So I think it's very much part of his DNA and that generation in particular, growing up in the 60s and 70s as children and then as young teens, to be immersed in that world of future-oriented thinking about the Soviet Union. Future-oriented. Things are good, and you only expect them to get better. Now, if you grew up in the United States during the tail end of the Cold War like me, I know what you're thinking. You'd have been fed the same propaganda that the Soviet Union was a cold, gray place where kids go hungry. Well, in the 60s, that was more likely to be true of America. 73% of all Clay County families receive less than $3,000. The very young, their mothers, the aged, are the most numerous inhabitants of this permanent culture of poverty. Yep. Because in the Soviet Union, basic stuff, food, a roof over your head, that was all provided for by the state. Whether in communist headquarters in Odessa on the Black Sea or in the Hermitage Art Gallery in Leningrad, every activity is controlled by directives that originate under the gold domes of the Kremlin. So if you're Sergei a young boy coming of age in Leningrad in the 60s and 70s, 
things would have seemed pretty good. He didn't grow up in luxury, but it was a carefree environment. He knew everything was gonna be just fine. He went to school, he went swimming, he joined the city's gymnastics team and the local airplane club, all for free. And in his spare time, he was doing what all the other kids were doing in the Soviet Union. He would have been reading the same kinds of exciting, popular science fiction and novels. Titles like Hard to be a God, The Land of Crimson Clouds, The Man from Mars. It was all about space. Limitless possibility, utopia. And not just in the pages of his books. He would have grown up watching these hero cosmonauts being eulogized. A huge crowd of Muscovites, fellow cosmonauts, and Russian leaders. And doing amazing things in outer space. After Gagarin, the USSR just kept beating the Americans to it. First probe to Mars. Landing on Mars by an unmanned space probe from Earth. First woman in space. The first ever space girl, Valentina Tereshkova, has won a place in history. First person to walk in open space. Man, for the first time, has stepped forth into the emptiness of space. Okay, the Americans got to the moon in 1969. Obviously, a big deal. But the Soviets were working on something bigger. A permanent home in space. A space station where cosmonauts can go live and actually do some science. The Soviets wanted to spend months up there, maybe eventually forever. It looked like a weird Lego tube with solar panel wings. They call it Salyut 1. And over the next decade, they upgraded it with better and better versions. Salyut 2, Salyut 3, kind of like iPhones. Till they got the best version yet. Salyut 7. The Americans were jealous. They had nothing like it. Once again, the Soviets were winning. And it's in this atmosphere that Sergei finished school and decided he too wants to become a cosmonaut, to go and live on a Soviet space station. And so he went to an engineering university, and in 1981, he graduated top of his class. And because of that, he was chosen to work for a very special place. The same place that designed the first space satellite, the first spaceship carrying the first man, a place called Energia. Sergei starts out working on instruction manuals for cosmonauts. Not the most exciting work, but it will come in handy. Because one day in February 1985, Sergei gets a call. The space station, Salyut 7. It's lost power. It's dead. If we don't rescue it, the Americans will overtake us and win the space race. So here's the plan. It's kind of crazy. We're going to send two cosmonauts to this dead thing and try to turn the power back on. But we don't really know how to do it because it's never been done before. So we need someone who can figure out how to do it. Someone to lead the mission from the ground. Someone who knows the station back to front. And we're thinking this could be you. (laughs) 
something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. June 6th, 1985, 10.40 a.m., Mission Control. A loud, ominous rumbling starts up on Sergei's radio. It's the sound of a rocket taking off. Two cosmonauts are launching into space, to the dead, empty station. Sergei's got a big job ahead of him. In about 48 hours, the time it'll take to reach Earth's orbit, He's going to have to tell these two cosmonauts how they're going to do this thing no one's ever done before. How to land on a dead station. Usually, landing on a working station is the easy bit. It's all done automatically. But this station is dead. And that means Sergei has to figure out how to do it manually. How to land on the station with nothing to tell you the way, the speed, the angle. It's a bit like driving a race car at night with no lights, no markers. 
But Sergei is on it. He goes into a simulator, a kind of fake spaceship. It's the same thing I trained on. It literally looks and feels like a real spaceship, but it's set up in a warehouse on Earth. The next best thing to being in space. So he starts practicing. How to get the tiny ship to spin at the same angle as the station. How to get the right speed. And his accuracy has to be exact. If he's off by an inch, millimeters even, the rocket will crash into the station and explode. The cosmonauts are dead. He tries again and again and again, failing and failing, until he's got it. He races back to mission control, calls up to the cosmonauts, and tells them this is how you do it. It's now or never. Hundreds of miles away, the cosmonauts can see the looming bulk of the station through their porthole. It's spinning, out of control. A 20-ton chunk of metal. And they're approaching it, fast, at 18,000 miles an hour. Sergei feels his breathing accelerate. At any moment, ground control could lose contact. You can imagine him shutting his eyes, hoping, praying. And then, a juddering sound. Like something's wrong with the radio. Static. Five seconds. Four seconds. Three seconds. Two seconds. And then he hears it. The cosmonauts' voices on the radio. They'd made it. But Sergei knows. It's just the beginning. The cosmonauts still have to enter the ship find the root of the problem, and bring the station back to life. And they've got no idea what they're going to find inside. They didn't know, for example, if the entire station was filled with toxic gases. They didn't know if the station was frozen. They didn't know if the station was cracked. They had no idea. If you open the hatch and there's a big chunk of ice, you know, what would you do? If you open the hatch and the LED screens are broken, cracked, and there's glass, what do you do? They open the hatch and very gingerly walked into the, what's called a transfer compartment. And they slowly, gingerly again opened another hatch into the main compartment. And one of the things that I think both cosmonauts remembered is that everything was just dead silence. They'd never been in space before in a completely silent environment. Because when you're in a spaceship, things are whirring and clicking and moving and things like that. It's dead silence, a silence that I don't think any human being had ever really heard. It's outer space, and they're moving in this dead, dark, pitch-black space station in utter silence. It's also freezing. Everything. The walls, the panels, are covered in a sheet of ice. 
they move by touch. They have flashlights, of course, and they eventually figure out the lay of the land. Through the weak beams of their torches, they can just about make out the station's long, cavernous corridors filled with lifeless equipment and reams of wires. Sergei instructs them to work very carefully. All the batteries they check, they have these instruments, you know, zero volt, zero volt, zero volt, etc. All the batteries are dead. And remember, it's really cold, so they can't spend too long on the station. And every time, you know, they go in there, they come back, and they're completely freezing. On the ground, in the Soviet press, this mission was really downplayed. They didn't even say it was a rescue mission at all. Just routine, going up there and doing some science experiments. In fact, they had a press conference. A video press conference. From space during their mission, these two cosmonauts. And they were told to take off their warm clothes, like their hats and gloves and whatever, because people would be wondering why they're wearing this in space. So for the duration of the conference, you know, however long, 20 minutes or so, they they were extremely cold, but pretending everything's fine. The idea was that nothing ever goes wrong in the Soviet space program. That's right. Nothing ever goes wrong in the Soviet space program, or in the Soviet economy, or in Soviet society. The system was flawless. That was the party line. And the cosmonauts, freezing their asses off, had to stick it out. The cosmonauts spend days working in pitch black, sub-zero temperatures, trying to find a working power source. These kind of situations where everything is going sideways is what they train you for as a cosmonaut. When I was training, we ran drills where things went perfectly. But I would say 80% of the time, we were practicing for when things went wrong. But it still doesn't prepare you fully. So for a long time, there's nothing. But then, finally, Sergei sees a small number of lights begin to flicker. The crew have managed to reactivate one of the solar panels. This means the station finally has some power. It's gonna be okay. They can save the station. Mission Control erupts in ecstatic applause. Sergei finds himself being wrapped into hugs, kissed on the cheeks, mobbed. This is a unique, unique event in the history of space exploration where a crew essentially brought their spaceship to a dead object in space and revived the whole thing within weeks. Sergei had done the near impossible. He saved the station. He wasn't going to be a national hero like Gagarin, parading through Red Square. The whole thing was top secret. But he was going to get a reward. I don't think it's a coincidence that very soon after the mission, he gets assigned to a crew. A crew to actually go to space, see the Earth from above, float around in zero gravity. His dream, the one he's had since he was a little boy, was finally about to come true. I think for Krakaliov, I think it might have seemed when he's assigned to his first mission, my guess is, you know, the future is bright and uh, who knows what's ahead. It's the boundless future. But I think we have a better sense of it now that some of this stuff was just kind of the last gasp. The last gasp of a collapsing superpower. The Soviet Union then was frozen 
The economy was grinding to a halt. It was a time of total stagnation. Nothing was changing, and if it didn't change soon, it would come crashing down. That's Serge Schmimmen. He's a reporter for The New York Times. In 1980, he was working as a journalist in South Africa when he was told by his editor, we want you to go and cover Moscow. From the peak of summer to the depth of winter, Serge and his family stopped over in Helsinki and bought warm clothes, then took a slow train to Moscow on New Year's Eve. We had one can of beer to celebrate, and uh, if the train was empty, nobody was traveling on New Year's night on December 31st. Early in the morning on January 1st, they pulled into Moscow Central Station. It was dead. Everybody was asleep. After a night of revelry, dawn was just breaking, and the station clock tower was bathed in this beautiful golden light, and the square was covered in a fresh layer of untouched snow. It was like a storybook Moscow. A storybook Moscow. But soon enough, reality hit. Shops were largely empty. You know, there was very little. There was. You could survive. There was bread. There was meat. But it was all on an elemental level. The bare minimum. Because by the 80s, the Soviet economy had stopped working. For decades, all decisions about what to spend and how much to produce were made in a single office building in Moscow for millions of people. And while these bureaucrats in this office building put a ton of money towards flashy space projects, they didn't pay much attention to how people were going to feed themselves. And eventually, by the 80s, this caught up with them. The system had become inefficient and corrupt. The Soviet Union couldn't produce enough grain to feed its own population. There were chronic shortages all around. Look, look how expensive these carrots are. And there's nothing else in the state stores. But when things did occasionally appear, people went nuts. This could be toilet paper, this could be, you know, toothpaste, it could be anything. News spread fast. Your neighbor would tell you, hey, there's a cheese delivery at the store two streets over. You'd stop whatever you're doing and go. People would rush to that store and line up. People spend up to three hours a day waiting in line. The longest lines are at the vodka shops. So there was, you know, like an army of people who walked around Moscow all day trying to find things to buy and getting in line. And I would join those lines. The Soviet system was at breaking point. But people felt like they couldn't do anything about it. You had absolutely no say in politics, in who ran your country and who ran your life. And to think about it, to talk about it, was dangerous. Serge's storybook Moscow turned into a nightmare. And this was very bad news for Sergei as well. Because if there was no money in the Soviet Union, then there was no money for the space program. And that meant his dream of going to space might be over before it had even begun. It seemed that the country was stuck, that nothing would change. But then, it did. This time, the Soviets seemed to have opted for a long-term change. The man who took charge within hours of Konstantin Chernyenko's death. The new Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev 
Горбачева Михаила Сергеевича. Get used to the name. Михаил Горбачев. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the mid-80s, the gray-suited bureaucrats who had been running the country for decades began to, well, die off, one by one in quick succession. Andropov, Chernenko, people you'd probably never heard of. Footnotes in History. Another Soviet leader who was too old and too sick when he took power to hold on to it has died. And then they chose a great and sort of fateful act. They chose a young man, well-educated, well-spoken, charming smile, Mikhail Gorbachev. Get used to the name, Mikhail Gorbachev. 
he presented himself differently to the very formal, stuffy leaders that came before. But above all, he's got charisma. I mean, he's got charisma Western style. Much more aware of Soviet weaknesses, much more open to new ideas. By Soviet standards, he was revolutionary. It was an almost immediate, and I must say, enormously exciting change. The change Gorbachev would bring to the Soviet Union was seismic. This is the story of the emergence of Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev, of the most sweeping changes in the Soviet Union since the Russian Revolution. In February 1986, he delivered a speech that shook the country. The notion was that we had to reform the way we live. To reform the way we live in order to survive. To survive as the Soviet Union. And the reform had to be radical, from the bottom up. Gorbachev said that the people should be able to speak their minds, that people should be able to make money. He called it perestroika, a restructuring, and glasnost, openness. Oh, this is, to my mind, something like fresh air in our society, you see? It's a great freedom. I think that glasnost uh, is the first step towards uh, real democracy in our society. It was an earthquake. It was a, a daily earthquake. For the first time, you could start your own business. And so suddenly bakeries appeared in Moscow and you could go get fresh bread. Things appeared that people could sell. Little shops appeared, kiosks in the street. Culture opened up. Suddenly every TV station is being more candid, is showing more. The girls singing in Moscow and the boys singing in Minneapolis reached out, slipped just a little, and seemed to hold hands while half a world apart. When you're coming out of, of, of that system where everything was controlled to an incredible degree, and especially when it's out of that period of stagnation, when there was nothing fun on TV, nothing interesting, sort of variety shows where 60-year-old veterans singing some old ballad, some old patriotic ballad. And suddenly, these things are happening. American movies made it to Moscow. On the past now. For you! Rambo. For me, civilian life is nothing! Star Wars. You should not have come back. James Bond. I've looked forward to this moment, Mr. Bond. There was so much demand. I intend to enjoy it to the full. Some savvy entrepreneurs pirated copies and set up makeshift movie theaters in their apartments. You could speak, you could buy, you could think. I mean, all these things that had been under a cloud were now out in the open. There was a sense that, you know, the system was changing. And that change encompassed everything from how you did your shopping to the space program. The space program that in 1985 did still have its space station, its crown jewel, but had no more money. The country was in such bad shape, the government could no longer afford to splurge on space. This was not just a practical matter. It was a question of national identity. The cosmonauts became real heroes. Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space. So there was great pride in this program. It, it showed that Russia, the Soviet Union, that the Soviet people were ahead of the West in something that is so kind of advanced and dramatic and romantic. 
But now there was no more money to fund this dramatic and romantic cornerstone of Soviet identity. No breaking the next frontier. No inspiring the Soviet people. No future. And no future for the program meant no future for our man, Sergei. But Gorbachev had an idea. An idea of how to save the mighty but crumbling space program. To sell Soviet space services globally on the commercial market. Yep, Gorbachev's big idea was capitalism. After decades of keeping everything under wraps, the Soviets were now going to say to the world, our space program is open for business. We'll launch your satellites for you. So you could pay X million dollars, deliver your satellite to the Soviets, and they would launch it into space. We can also sell you some of our world-class equipment, things no other space programs have. And this should have been an extremely attractive sales pitch for countries that don't have their own space programs. But there's one big problem. Of course, they don't understand a thing about capitalism or markets or anything. The Soviets were great at making high-tech stuff. But after years of living under communism, they were not so good at selling things, marketing, advertising. But then they finally come up with a plan. A plan that would totally change the space program and give our man Sergei a chance to fulfill his dream. Decades before Elon Musk, the Soviets started thinking, what if we sell seats to go to space? Invite people into the heart of the Soviet program. Train them. Fly them up there. In other words, space tourism. It was the idea that would eventually lead me, Lance Bass, to go to Russia and train to be a cosmonaut. The first country wanting to buy the Soviet services? Japan. They sent a TV journalist to the Soviet Union to fly with the cosmonauts. They were so desperate for money, the Soviets agreed that the rocket could be sponsored by Japanese brands, a pharmaceutical company, a manufacturer of sanitary towels, and a maker of karaoke equipment. The deal was worth $12 million. Pretty good. But it wasn't enough. So the Soviets decided to go bigger. They were going to create a contest to try to find the best person in an entire country to go to space. I was driving my car home from work and uh, flicking through the stations trying to find some music and I heard an announcement, I suppose an advert really, and it started off with, Astronaut wanted, no experience necessary. In the next episode, this unassuming British woman travels to Russia, like me, trains to be a cosmonaut and flies with Sergei on the mission he almost didn't come home from. That's next time on The Last Soviet. The Last Soviet is a Kaleidoscope production in partnership with iHeart Podcast and Exile Media. Produced by Samizdat Audio. And hosted by me, Lance Bass. Executive produced by Kate Osborne and Mangesh Hadakador, with Oz Woloshin and Kostas Linos. From iHeart, executive produced by Katrina Norvell and Nikki Ettore. From Sam's Dad Audio, our executive producers are Joe Sykes and Dasha Lisitsina. Produced by Asia Fuchs, Dasha Lisitsina, and Joe Sykes. Writing by Lydia Marchant, research by Mika Golubovsky. 
and Molly Schwartz. Music by Will Epstein, theme by Martin Orstrick. Sound design by Richard Ward. And special thanks to Nando Villa, Alyssa Pollock, Will Pearson, Connell Byrne, Bob Pittman, and Isaac Lee. If you want to hear more shows like this, nothing is more important to the creators here at Kaleidoscope than subscribers, ratings, and reviews. So please spread the love wherever you listen. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin, And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.